Dusty, what's the one book you can always find in our car when we're on a trip? Honestly, Mike, it is usually a Moon travel guide. That's right. Moon is our favorite travel guidebook publisher because not only are they a source for ethical travel and the best ways to get away, but their books also are packed full of information on everything from sites to see, trails to hike, restaurants, and lodging, all from real authors who are local to the areas they're writing about. That's right. And we're so excited that this year we are again partnering with Moon Travel Guides. Ready to cross something off your travel bucket list in 2024? Have a lot of great ideas for trips, but don't know how to get started or keep your itinerary organized? Wherever your wanderings might take you or inspire you to go, Moon Travel has you covered. Moon Travel is the travel guidebook publisher for ethical travel. Don't spend months trying to craft the perfect getaway when you can do it all with Moon. Whether you're headed abroad, planning to take to the open road, or want to wander the trails of a national park, make sure to pack a Moon Travel Guide with you. Through the end of 2024, our listeners can get 20% off any Moon Travel Guide when they use the code GAZE20 at checkout. That's amazing. And that is code GAZE24, G-A-Z-E-2-4 for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else. Be sure to visit Moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guide books. For some people, it might be easy to look at the landscape because it is so stark and feel like it might be a hard landscape to kind of connect to. It's not instantly kind of comfortable. There aren't trees and little flowing creeks and like, and so I would like people to just be inspired by this landscape that does look so alien. I mean, it really looks like you're on another planet. And also to be inspired to kind of dig further. So if you're a first time visitor, you should by all means drive into Furnace Creek, which is the main hub and take the main road and see Badwater Basin, um, which are like the lowest point in the park and in North America, these wonderful salt flats. You should by all means do all of those things, the highlights. But then if you have a little bit more time, I would encourage you to stay and dig into the park, explore some of the canyons. There's really a lot to see kind of beyond the surface. Hello and welcome to Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. I'm Dusty. And I'm Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, Gaze at the National Parks is a podcast that explores the trails of America's national parks. One hiking trail and one national park, one park at a time. In between our full-length episodes, which explore these trails, we have trail mix episodes. These episodes cover a variety of topics related to the national parks and the environment. And sometimes that means we get to hear from some special guests. We are excited to continue our partnership with Moon Travel Guides, who connected us to Jenna Blau, who wrote the Moon Travel Guide to Death Valley National Park and the Moon Travel Guide to Joshua Tree National Park and Palm Springs. Jenna Blau grew up near the Blue Ridge Mountains and thanks to some epic cross-country road trips, developed a love for the western side of the United States, particularly the California desert. When she's not living out of a tent at a campsite, she can be found in her home in LA with her daughter and husband. In addition to her moon travel guides, she is a contributor to modernhiker.com, and you can always read about her latest adventures at whentheroadends.com. And recently, we were able to sit down with Jenna and chat about Death Valley, Joshua Tree, Palm Springs, and the wonders of the desert landscape. 
Hi, Jenna. It is so nice to meet you. Hello. So where are you chatting with us from today? I am in Los Angeles. And you obviously have a very familiar relationship with both Joshua Tree and Palm Springs, as well as Death Valley, as you are the author of those two moon travel guides. Start with Death Valley. How did your relationship with Death Valley begin? It was uh, <laughs> over a very long period of time. Uh, First, I had to get from the East Coast where I grew up. I grew up in Virginia in the very idyllic Shenandoah Valley, the Blue Ridge Mountains. It was absolutely lovely. Uh, My parents were big on kind of taking road trips. And so during the summers, we would take road trips. We took one big road trip out west, kind of saw all the classic American sites like, you know, Mount Rushmore and uh, Mesa Verde. and, And I think that really planted the seeds of like the romance of the American West in my head. And so after college and grad school, I I really wanted to get out West. And so I applied to a second round of grad school out here and moved to Los Angeles. And so getting to Death Valley was, again, its own journey. I went to school for writing. And so after I graduated, um, I should have been like writing a collection of short stories or working on a novel. And instead, I was uh, started kind of trip planning and like got obsessed with maps and uh, all of California. And so on weekends, I was just like taking road trips and going to the Sierra Nevada mountains and taking the scenic route every time I could. And Death Valley was always kind of in my imagination. I wanted to get there. I'd even done like some writing projects about it, but I hadn't actually visited it. Um, I probably could have gotten there um, a lot more easily if I had just like taken the highway, which would have taken me about four hours. But, um, you know, I was taking all these like little scenic trips and getting kind of closer and closer. The closest I got to Death Valley um, on one of my last trips before I actually got there, I made it about 50 miles outside the park boundary. And then I was driving like this kind of ridiculous little compact city car. And uh, I stopped to see these tufa formations, which are like uh, these limestone formations in this big dry lake bed. It was like this kind of really neat stop. I was like, I'll just stop here and then I'll get into Death Valley. And like uh, my car broke down um, in the sand because I was like driving an inappropriate car. There was no cell phone reception. I was um, 25 miles like from the closest town. And so I hiked back out to the road and um, my plan was to hitchhike back to town. And uh, lucky for me, the first person who came by was a sheriff and he was able to like radio a you know, a tow truck and, and all this stuff. So I didn't make it that day. And after that, I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to go visit this place. And I did. And I've had kind of an ongoing uh, relationship with the park since then, obviously visiting it. Um, camping there, doing uh, four-wheel drives. I now have like, a Toyota 4Runner with a three-inch lift and off-road tires. <laughs> so I've been uh, traveling extensively in the park ever since then. I love that sort of uh, <laughs> near hit <laughs> that <laughs> happened so many times and kind of like, it's almost like a very romantic journey to finally get there. And then I'm sure once that actually happened and once you were actually able to get to the park, it probably developed into this love affair that obviously you've created a a whole travel guide based around it. So it's very evident that, you know, there's a clear love there with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunately a park that it was a near hit for us (laughs) when we We, were, we, uh, it was a part of a trip that took us to five, 
no, California place. Five, five, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was Joshua Tree was our first stop. Death Valley was going to be our second, but it sort of took us way too far out of the way to then get us up to Fresno to do like the fork off to Sequoia Kings Canyon in Yosemite. And it's definitely a park that I've heard so many things about from others. So, you know, looking through the book, it was exciting to kind of connect with the photography and to connect with those landscapes because thinking about Joshua Tree, which is also a desert park, um, or even Bryce Canyon, which is very, you know, desert arid. It's really fascinating. Those landscapes are so very foreign and so very alien. What is it about the desert for you? You know, obviously coming from the East Coast, and then having this sort of quintessential American road trip that kind of the allure was there to head back west. What is it about desert landscapes for you that's such a draw? Yeah, and uh, I want to add that your experience of not being able to get to Death Valley, like you're not, al- it's so remote. <laughs> it really, yeah. it takes a very long time to get there. Yeah. And then once you get there, it takes a really long time to get to your destination. And then once you get to the destination, you have like another 10 miles of rocky dirt road. <laughs> and then you have a five mile hike yes. into a canyon. And then there are the petroglyphs and the narrows and it's amazing. But yeah, it's, it's, um, <laughs> it's a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but for me, I think it goes back to that kind of the mystique of the American West that's really embodied in the desert, which is kind of these wide open spaces and this like this idea of possibility. It's almost like this blank slate. Like I'm here in Los Angeles living this like, you know, Los Angeles rat race lifestyle, but I can go to the desert. And that's so far behind. It just has nothing to do with anything that is happening out there. Out there really truly is like the ground and the sky and rocks and usually it, it not even any other people. So it's really just that, that kind of openness um, that I find soothing, but also rugged. It offers the possibility of like a rugged adventure as well. So yeah, just keep going back. <laughs> For us on our trips, those have been landscapes that have stuck with me always any sort of desert landscape because there is just something that is so different and there's so much beauty in that barrenness or at least in that lack of um, vegetation and I think it's always so impressive to me how desert plants and animals survive too um, in those spaces how ecosystems thrive there all the ecosystems you can't just see when you like look out over the floor of the desert I guess there's so much underneath I remember going to Joshua Tree and learning about why you so desperately need to stay on the trail and like don't veer off because there are all these delicate ecosystems that could just collapse that have been trying to develop for so long the desert offers this like beautiful type of life that we uh, we definitely don't get to see on the East Coast or in the South where I grew up. And I was curious, did you have a moment where you remember like coming, learning about desert ecosystems specifically? And was that part of your own fascination? Yeah, absolutely. And for me, it was also a trip to Joshua Tree. And Joshua Tree is, it's a, such a special place because of its ecosystem and these kind of where as in death valley you get kind of just this wide open spaces in joshua tree you really get these uh, juxtapositions like you get these spiky green joshua trees against these crack boulders and you get this kind of like very moody landscape and it is something that can only exist in that exact place 
because you know Joshua trees only live at like 3,500 feet, and so I got a real like lesson in elevations when I started going to Joshua Tree and understanding like what grows at certain elevations. And this is something that you don't think about so much on the East Coast. The temperatures kind of remain the same and the topography kind of stays the same in the flora and fauna. But here things are very, very different depending on um, how high up you are and what the kind of microclimate is like. It's wild to have experienced Joshua Tree and to have done our own deep dive into understanding what the incredible parameters are for Joshua Trees to actually still be with us. It's sort of like Sequoia Trees. That's right. like this like sliver of like, you know, of the plants yeah. that right. it might, it might yeah. grow. Yeah, so it is. It adds to, I think, that mystique, but also that allure, too. Been camping more and more, but we haven't done any sort of desert camping. I'm curious, especially in Joshua Tree, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, especially in Death Valley, what is that camping situation like there? It's probably the window is, I'm assuming, very, very small for camping and by time of year um, in Death Valley. Yeah, you know, Death Valley, speaking of elevations, you can actually camp from September to May. So during the middle of the winter, when it's really cold, you would wanna go to the lowest elevation. Like you can get to sea level and it's pretty temperate. In the spring and fall, it's absolutely beautiful. But it is, I would say the thing that defines camping in Death Valley is the wind. And the wind is absolutely, the wind is absolutely insane. And it's, you can't predict it and you might not get it. You might go and have just like a a beautiful, calm day. I have had many windy um, camping experiences. I've had gear literally disappear in the middle of the night, like no trace of it. (laughs) Um, I have had the tent flattened down on me. My husband likes to make a joke that if you're not outside, like restaking the tent in your boots and underwear at 2 a.m., like you're not tent camping in Death Valley. Like, is <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. Right. I mean, the la- I, I like to do um, New Year's camping in Death Valley, and it's just kind of a wonderful way to like start the new year being out there Uh, but the temperatures are are pretty extreme um they're beautiful during the day like maybe in the 60s the temperatures plummet at night but the last camping trip i did for new year's we were it was it's a wind story but we were camped in this little canyon called echo echo canyon there's a four-wheel drive we were camped at the uh the mouth of the canyon and it was a beautiful beautiful night when we all went to sleep and then we woke up in the middle of the night and like literally our tent i woke up and we have a giant like six-person tent for us but um <laughs> so it's like laying on top of my face you know we all got out restaking the tents our friends went to sleep in their jeep we toughed it out made it through and then you know the next morning we're like okay well that was exciting and um <laughs> like went to the closest town and like stayed in the hotel casino for the rest of the trip sometimes that's what you got to do right so if you get a wind like that is it typical for just you know the night just the day like will it will it stick around for quite some time is it sort of more um like I mean, obviously it's it's nature, so it's unpredictable in some ways. But is your in your experience, is it more of like a long term sort of? If there's going to be wind in Death Valley, it's sort of going to stick around. Right, right. I mean, it can, but in my experiences, there's usually like a reprieve in the afternoon, mm. which is nice, like for hiking. Um, and it usually the winds come through at night when you're safe and sound in your little sleeping bag. <laughs> Is wind going to show up, like, if you look it up in the weather, like, app, in a weather app or something? Or is it just so unpredictable that it's, it's going to be there or it may not? 
Yes, I think if there's extreme sustained winds over the course of days, then you would get like a wind advisory. But if it's just like the wind that comes through at two in the morning, I think that just <laughs> happens. The spirit of the park <laughs> just yeah. coming on through. The park is a dark sky park, I believe. It is. Correct. Um, that's, a, you know, we've, <laughs> we've had some hit or miss experiences we when have. it comes to dark sky. So I've seen some incredible Milky Way views, um, both in the States and out of the States. First of all, the sky must be gigantic in Death Valley because the mountains are there, but I'm sure because of everything being so low, you probably get like a pretty unparalleled view of what the sky is like. So can you just describe that experience, especially for people that maybe have never been in a space where the Milky Way is so visible, um, whether it's a dark sky park or somewhere else? Yeah, the stargazing in Death Valley is spectacular. And there's rarely any cloud cover because they get so little rain every year. So you can almost guarantee that you're going to see a starry sky. Some of the best places to see that beautiful, big, dazzling sky are some of the lower, more open places. So not in a canyon because you'll have canyon walls right. blocking the sky. So you would go somewhere like Badwater Basin, uh, you know, just kind of go out after sunset and you can see the Milky Way and you can really just see a dazzling full uh, sky of stars, um, constellations. I mean, it's, it is a one of those moments when you really do feel like insignificant in outer space. It, it really is kind yeah. of all encompassing. And then around the edge, you might see, you'll see the, um, the outline of the mountains kind of very inky, but the rest of your vision is going to be taken up with those beautiful starry skies. Yeah. I, I, that's what I feel like. It's sort of that just gigantic sky. I can close my eyes and picture it like more so than any other space. Um, and that sort of like inky, very shadowy mountain ranges in the distance. It's got to be just so awe-inspiring. And you're right. So <laughs> insignificant making. <laughs> we were yeah. in Black Canyon of the Gunnison, which was one of our first dark sky parks. I think so. Yeah. And we were very excited because we were like, yeah, we're going to drive we, so back we went, up to the canyon. We drove back up at night and it was a full moon. <laughs> and we were like, well, maybe we'll the see moon something. looked maybe. gorgeous. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and you know, That's it? she was out <laughs> and like, that was it. Right. So we were like, okay, we only had what one, two nights, two nights, we, two there, nights yeah. there, but it was yeah, we a were big obviously. bright moon both nights. Yeah. So, um, we said, okay, well, we're going to, we'll try again another dark sky park. Yeah. It has, has yet to happen thus far. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's part of probably the nice thing about a park like that. And it's, you know, aside from the fact that it's so remote, <laughs> you know, those remote parks are great, but in, in the fact that you do, there is a, the solitude um, that comes and B, probably less crowds because again, they're harder to get to um, or maybe just a little bit more remote um, for people to want to drive to. But then you have like that spectacular night show that maybe you're lucky enough, fortunate enough to see if you're not <laughs> in a park around the full moon. <laughs> Got to go for those new moon nights. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Check the calendar. Check the moon yeah. calendar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in Death Valley, what would you say, what are things that uh, you've mentioned a few places to go and a few, you know, things to see? What are the picks that you would pick for if you really wanted to experience Death Valley in its fullness? 
and you had, say, you know, a few days, what are some things that you would definitely recommend? Well, first, I would say do yourself a favor and just take the most spectacular entrance drive into the park, uh, which is Titus Canyon on the eastern side of the park. So every, every drive into Death Valley is beautiful. You're really just kind of in stunning landscape right away. But Titus Canyon is, it's a very special place. So you start on the Nevada side of Death Valley and there's one one lane road. It's a dirt road. It snakes down through over these mountain ranges and then into a canyon and uh, over 26 miles. So when it starts out, it's um, kind of rocky and hilly. And then very quickly, you get into some really spectacular territory where you are looking at the road as it snakes through these red mountains. The colors shift as you're driving. The rocks are uh, different colors due to like the different mineral content. So you're seeing like pinks and greens. So the landscape is beautiful and it's shifting, but you're also seeing this like tiny ribbon of a road, just like clinging to the side of the mountain. So you're really feeling like, you know, you're you're getting into this very, um, very rugged landscape. The road eventually winds down into this canyon where you'll pass a little ghost town, this tiny little spot called Leadfield that was like very short-lived. It was kind of a big scam and the town never actually happened, but you can see the ruins there. And then you end the drive in these really spectacular canyon narrows. So the road is only big enough for one car. You could reach your arm out the side of the, the your uh, your window and actually touch the canyon wall on either side. So wow. these very, very tight, high narrows. And that's how you end the drive. And then you come out of the narrows and you're on the canyon floor, like in the salt flats. Would you say that to access a larger portion of the park, you'd need a vehicle that has like four wheel drive or that would be able to accommodate for rougher road? Or do you think the park has just as much accessibility for like a sedan to like, you know, like something that's not as off-roady or rugged? It seemed like that drive sounds amazing. It sounds like you might need something with a little bit more horsepower and a little bit <laughs> higher off the ground, right? Yeah, yeah. They, the park recommends four-wheel drive for that road. Um, it depends on the road conditions. You could you could do it in a lot, like a kind of a anything that has just the tiniest bit of clearance, probably like a regular compact SUV or something. But there are also Jeep rentals in the park. Um, you could rent a Jeep and pick a couple spots that you really want to see. There are a lot of amazing places you can see with just any car. There are main paved roads that go through the park. They access spectacular hiking. And if you're in the park for a day or two, then there's, you know, there's really no reason to go and rent a Jeep. But if you kind of have a couple destinations in mind that have a rougher road, then you can you could do that. Um, before I got the the car that I have now, I definitely rented Jeeps in the park. That's great to know. Yeah. But um, one of the other spots that I would recommend is uh, you do access it by mostly paved road, and it's in the most northern end of the park, and it's called the uh, the Eureka Dunes. These are singing dunes. Uh, there are singing dunes in a couple different places in the world, but what happens is that the sand kind of slides down and just due to like the, um, the makeup of the sand, they actually make this kind of booming sound. Um, oh, so these, oh. yeah, it's, it's very surreal. 
and the, the dunes themselves are about 700 feet tall so you're just seeing these kind of like sandscapes just sculpted against the sky um, so that's a really wonderful wonderful place to visit and there's camping right at the base of the dunes huh is that a constant booming noise essentially or it's it's very occasionally so it always okay. catches you off guard like what was that sound you forget about the dunes then like oh what huh. was that strange sound we just heard that's so fascinating that is really really cool i love that the desert oddities just come on out <laughs> <laughs> it's always there's always something strange like whether it's like canyons carved by wind or hoodoos or now singing right. dunes I feel like it's you know we've entered into a fantasy world and the right. quest will be bestowed upon you <laughs> the Eureka Dunes yes at the Eureka Dunes when you hear the song they sing yeah, yeah. oh I love it that's awesome we're, we're big fans of fantasy fiction here <laughs> um, this makes me want to go to Death Valley like more than this yeah. weekend yeah <laughs> i wish i yeah. i wish we could get there this weekend yeah well this makes me curious too so we did go to joshua tree we spent two days two days two it days wasn't in joshua enough tree. time not enough time means. yeah we were able to do 49 palms beautiful i love that what? hike we did um hidden Val the hidden valley trail which is like sort of like the primer trail i feel like um we explored around jumbo rocks um we, we went to, to the, the chola, chola cactus, cactus garden, garden. oh we drove, i love like, that pretty oh, yeah. far through the park we were with friends who live in la um who were we were like hey we're taking this trip would you love would you like to meet up with us it'd be awesome and they're like we love joshua tree which i feel like it joshua tree seems to be like such a kind of park hub for everybody in la or a lot of people in la seem to like really gravitate and really feel like that park is their home park it was a great experience but there was so much to see that we just didn't get a chance to um so yeah, I didn't mean to cut into you. So did you? Oh have a question no, from I there? was just curious <laughs> about like what are your what are the things you would recommend? Yes, I would agree with the idea that Joshua Tree is kind of the home park for um, for Angelinos, and you can definitely tell that on Friday commutes east. Um, it <laughs> does seem like everyone in the city of Los Angeles is heading out Empties. for a, yeah. a weekend wow. a weekend in Joshua Tree, um, but. You know, Joshua Tree is, um, it's an accessible park in some ways because you can literally drive in one park entrance and you can do that beautiful drive along Park Drive when you're just seeing kind of breathtaking scenery. The Joshua Trees juxtaposed against the granite boulders and until you know how those rock formations were formed. It literally looks like they've been kind of dropped by some like giant or god or something. It's just a very, very surreal, strange landscape. So I would say just kind of doing the scenic drive is like the first step. But then the hikes in Joshua Tree, there are, there are so many. If you really look at a, um, a hiking map, there are just, there are so many miles of trails and they're all interconnected. Picking a trail to do is really such a great way to kind of delve into the landscape. One of the trails that I like, and there's actually no particular destination, but it really kind of gets you into the landscape, is the Willow Hold Trail. Um, and that is just a trail that kind of goes straight into this area called the Wonderland of Rocks. And so, I mean, the whole park is like a wonderland of rocks, but this area in particular, there are just extra clusters of boulders and spiky Joshua trees. And um, so this trail just kind of strikes like right into the heart of those, those rock formations. 
and then um, definitely doing a hike where you gain some elevation is is something that is great in uh, in Joshua Tree because the landscape is uh, so surreal but it is also kind of very labyrinthine there are not kind of strict canyons like there are in Death Valley they're just like clusters of rocks and so I find that doing like an elevation hike like Ryan Mountain is kind of a really popular hike that I would definitely recommend and that is um, it's a short hike but you gain a lot of elevation very quickly and once you're on top of this mountain it's about 4,000 feet you you can get some perspective you can kind of get above those boulders and above the tree line and you're looking down and I always I find it fascinating to kind of see how everything is kind of grouped together. I think about um, kind of how people used the land and like subsisted on the land or how ranchers kind of eked out a living. And so kind of looking down in these like groups of boulders, like, oh, okay, I can see that this is a place where people could survive. And like, this is a place where there might, you know, have been a homestead or a, a camp. Yeah, I feel I've heard that we have a friend that lives right in Joshua Tree now who's been out there for a few years that we haven't had a chance to get out to since pandemic times. But um, he's he does a lot of um, he does a lot in the park. He hikes a lot. He bikes the park a lot. Um, he you know, he's a climber. I don't think he's climbing outdoors too, too much. But I know that it's a park where there's there are a lot of things that one can do besides just hike and take in. Um, the views but he has said that like you know some of the hikes are long like really really long so you have to be really careful obviously about water but also time of year that you're going to do a long hike like that because you could really get zapped because there's no cover I love the idea of interconnected trails that's like a choose your own adventure wonderland it's really cool that that is something that is a part of that park system and you're right that the rock climbing is a huge activity and even if you're not an experienced rock climber and you're interested in it, there are a lot of climbing schools and climbing lessons. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's people, it's a destination for rock climbing. How did you notice, um, or did you notice the, you know, with the government shutdown and even with COVID, that, you know, we were, we've done a few episodes about how, you know, poorly Joshua Tree specifically had been treated during that time was that something that you sort of were able to see firsthand or you just were sort of hearing kind of those reports um being in LA at the time like what was that sort of situation like especially for someone who you know loves the park like you do yeah I did not see it firsthand um because the park was closed for that period of time and so I did not go there because it was closed but from what I heard a lot of people did go there and I certainly understand that like people were really really wanting to get out my understanding was that there was just a lot of illegal camping and with um someplace like Joshua Tree like it looks so sturdy you're like oh it's the desert but um it's it's very very fragile and so it's just kind of this mentality that it's this indestructible place and it's certainly not um but I did not I did not see it firsthand um I think the park realized that they had to be kind of staff just to kind of (laughs) maintain yeah Yeah, I mean and so it was kind of a short-lived shut down but yeah that was just kind of I I was understanding that people were also camping and like preserves in the area just places that really aren't set up 
for yeah. a kind of heavy use car camping. You know, we talked a lot about too, just like explosive kind of numbers gains in parks across the NPS in the last few years, um, especially the last two. Do you feel like, you know, it has, you mentioned like everybody on a Friday from Los Angeles heading out, but do you feel like you've seen numbers increase? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I it's borne out by, I know there's data, this is a, there have been a lot of people visiting national parks and tourism is up in all these places. Um, I've seen it in Death Valley, but I've particularly seen it in Joshua Tree. And it is a kind of difficult question to grapple with because on one hand, like these are our national parks and they're for yeah. everyone and it's wonderful for people to get out. But, you know, they're they're being overloved and people have written articles about this and i see that a lot in joshua tree um particularly because joshua tree has kind of a small acreage everybody is just kind of condensed in these in these few areas and joshua tree is a destination as a national park and because of its landscape but it's also a destination for I mean, it has kind of this other mystique, like music videos were filmed there. Like there's a video of like Jim Morrison, like driving his car, like, you know, in the Joshua Tree area. And like you too made like their Joshua Tree album. So it kind of has this other mystique um, that's like maybe it's rock like and- a pop culture. Yeah, it's like a pop culture yeah. destination. And so I think that sometimes people go out to experience it, but they're just experiencing it as a, backdrop <laughs> um yeah, yeah and so that can like impact the experience of other people who are going to like sure. hike or sightsee or rock climb or you know actually like right. get into the more park. of like a box to check than a kind of experience to have like oh okay we drove through yeah I'll make my I'll take my U2 um, album cover photo. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 exactly. We're both educators and we talk all the time about how like we were never taught about the national parks in school ever. And that's indicative of like, you know, a bigger gap in education, certainly. But I'm curious, like, is education a part of your journey as a writer? Do you have ways of teaching in, in your work? There are definitely tips in both of my books for respecting the trails. It is kind of a difficult thing to approach because you don't want to sound kind of like preachy, like don't do this, and you know, I would like to treat people like they don't know how to be outside. (laughs) Um, But yeah, but there there are definitely tips. Like I know in the Death Valley book, like I have um, tips for like finding a dispersed campsite. Like I, I sometimes think that people go to these spaces and they want to feel that freedom that you know we're maybe a lot of us are looking for when we go to a national park like oh i'm not in my nine to five job i'm not in my apartment i'm not in my city i'm out here and i'm just like free and so i can do whatever i want yeah so how do you ride that line of like the the audience that is is very informed and the audience that's less informed i I, yeah i mean i think just some some simple rules for um you know respecting the landscape like in the joshua tree book i have a little section that talks about um the trails there because there are a lot of like social trails so you know you're following a wash and then all of a sudden there's a trail off to the side and it's not exactly the right trail but so many people follow it and it gets kind of worn down and then more and more people follow it and then 
you know, you have like a lot of different trails. So in Joshua Tree, I just kind of talk about that. And like, I didn't know what a social trail was. I just, um, so it's a, like I introduced the term and then it's also a way of like, being aware and not getting lost by yeah or with death valley i talked about the dispersed camping and like how to find a site like here's how you can find a dispersed camping site you are allowed to camp in these places but this is what you should look for your book on joshua tree is also about palm springs yes we've not been to palm springs (laughs) funny enough we've not been to palm springs um I know quite a few people who have. I don't know that they've gone there to do outdoor adventuring. I think they've gone there to do more just, you know, to be gay in Palm Springs. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what you do. You go to Palm yeah. Springs to luxuriate by the pool, to go out to brunch, to go out to dinner. And that's, that's really... When I'm in Palm Springs, I have a very hard time tearing myself away from the pool to do anything else, even like shopping. Like, okay, I need to go shopping so that I can include, you know, these wonderful shops in my shopping section in the book. And even even that's hard. But, But there are some outdoor things that are really really beautiful and like worth worth experiencing so the way that i do it is i just get up really early and i do like a hike or whatever first and then i'm back at the pool by like nine or ten and then you have your whole day at the pool (laughs) oh that's great and then it's like uh and then you've got the pool as your sort of you know respite from all of your uh journeyings in the morning yeah i feel like joshua tree has there's so much around like the no Purifoy. Am I saying that right? I, we, I feel like we didn't get a chance to do that. The sculpture. There's also the, um, I can never remember the name of it, but it's got like, it's the, it's not the Megatron because that's a Transformer. Oh. The Integratron. The in- okay, thank you. So I feel like there's so many neat, deserty, weird things that surround Joshua Tree. So like if you had a like, like what would you recommend for people to kind of like investigate outside of the park? No, I feel like people go, out, I mean, Joshua Tree itself is beautiful as a national park, but then that area is such, has so many kind of like funky artistic like little gateway towns that people will go out for the weekend and actually not even make it into the park maybe or make it in and do a hike and then come back and do these things that you're talking about but um yeah the noah purifoy is is incredible um you know for people who don't know noah purifoy was a, a junk uh assemblage artist so he did this kind of junk dada sculptures with um like trash and like discarded things that he that he um found out in the desert and he was also an african-american artist and so a lot of his work has kind of this cultural cultural commentary but you can just visit this place you can just drive up to it it is north of the park at just like about five miles and it's in a neighborhood and you can just drive up and then just kind of wander around these sculptures um yeah yeah, they, a few years ago, some of them got taken to uh, MOCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art in mm-hmm. Los Angeles, and, you know, kind of displayed against these white walls. And I did not go see it, um, and I'm really wondering kind of what that experience was like, um, because I am so used to kind of seeing this against this desert backdrop, against sure. this really harsh backdrop. Yeah, it's almost, yeah. Like- it's almost very site-specific. So I'd imagine it probably would be very jarring to, like, see it in a different space. I- and very clean, like, and just kind of sterile. Um, when you think about, I'm an artist and I'm an art teacher, so it was something we wanted to do. I think it was actually right in the neighborhood of. It was. Uh, it totally not was. in 
our neighborhood of the Airbnb, but where our friends were staying. Um, I think the gate was like right there. And it was just like our timeline was so tight for that trip. But it's definitely something to like tick off for the next trip because I something I would love to to be able to do. Um, We do that all the time in our travels often is well, you know, go to the art museums that are close by that makes me so curious like I'm wondering about the the curation of those pieces indoors and how they could I don't know I'm like yeah how it would translate part of the outside inside for these pieces right I'm sure they had a million conversations about that oh sure sure I mean and I'm I'm sure his sculptures stand on their own but sure yeah but he was also like into kind of this decay and Mm -hmm. just the the effects that weather had on your art and so I feel like yeah seeing them in in context is is really cool definitely definitely check it out next time you're there Jenna, are there other desert landscapes that catch your eye that maybe haven't been... That aren't as popular? that aren't as popular, yeah. Absolutely. California, over the past couple of years, has done, like, a really great job of kind of forming new, like, uh, monuments and, like, kind of knitting together, like, these different, like, preserves and um, kind of little, like, state and national lands that have existed. There's, like, the Mojave Trails National Monument, the Castle Mountains. These are all places that are kind of around Joshua Tree. So in that area, like, uh-huh. north of Joshua Tree and south of Death Valley, there's one area that it, it's not new, but um, the Mojave National Preserve is a huge piece of land that is spectacularly beautiful and very lightly visited. And I started going there because Joshua Tree was so crowded and I really wanted to like kind of get out and explore more. It was never made into a national park, I think because the person who was kind of founding it was um, wanted to keep hunting there. I don't know what you would be hunting there. I mean, they're like jackrabbits and coyotes. I'm not really sure, but that's the story that I've heard. Each their own. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a, it's a really spectacular place and kind of has some of the elements of Joshua Tree and some of the elements of, of Death Valley. So you have granite boulders, you have Joshua Trees, but then you also have this kind of, um, you're getting into this like basin and range topography of Death Valley. So you have these kind of very sheer mountains and there are sand dunes there as well. Um, I actually just, yeah, um, the Kelso Dunes, they're called the Kelso Dunes, and these are like very, these are huge sand fields. There's camping um, right at the base of the sand dunes. Um, So that is kind of like an easy way to get into that park is to drive to the Kelso Dunes and camp there. There really aren't any services there, so that might keep, you know, some some people away um, but yeah absolutely like there there's a lot to explore that's not just concentrated in these in these national parks and it's a beautiful yeah, I, drive too you can just um so you go to joshua tree and then you just head east to the town of 29 palms and then you head north like you're going to vegas and you can drive straight through the park i mean a lot of people oh, cool. use it actually as a cut through to vegas <laughs> but, oh. but it's like a destination <laughs> great basin is another park that we haven't done that's you know one yeah, that's we do desert. Do yeah, that. I think that we're gonna have to somehow loop that into our Death Valley trip. <laughs> whatever oh, we definitely. do that, um, I don't yeah. think their proximity is as close, but I think it's gonna be something we're gonna have to make we'll a double trip out. out of. Yeah. yeah, this was a question that I was curious about. You have gone on the journey to write these two books about these two very different places. I'm curious, what did writing about Death Valley teach you about Joshua Tree? 
And then what did writing about Joshua Tree teach you about Death Valley? Maybe I'll, I'll say that there are different experiences for like different mindsets. I wrote about Death Valley first and I just felt like, wow, I'm just like so rugged and I just wrote this book and I like camped in the wind and I, you know, did, just did all these things and a lot of them I did by myself and I was like, this is this is just kind of who I am, like this, this desert person who drives around in like a big truck. And then um, I wrote the Joshua Tree book. I was like, oh, there are this is just a different way of kind of experiencing the landscape. This is a place like Joshua Tree that combines like kind of art and like artistic freedom, like and this landscape in this really unique way. So I would go there and I would spend my days hiking, um, but then I would also like, you know, stay at a cute Airbnb and like go shopping in Old Town Yucca Valley and like go see the Noah Purifoy or do a sound bath at the Integratron. Um, and so it was just like a very different way of experiencing the desert. But in some ways it has kind of the same spirit, like people are going to these places to kind of just be able to do what they want to do and kind of feel free, whether it's by like, you know, driving your truck, you know, through a canyon or it's like, you know, uh, being an artist out, out, out in the desert. Um, and then I went to Palm Springs and was like, maybe I'm just like a person who likes to relax by the pool, you know? <laughs> you can you can have it all. You I can think you can so. be all those I things. Think all of it can exist together. This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often. And that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by us, Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. To see images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gazeatthenationalparks at gmail.com. And to find out more about the parks visited on this show, visit our website, gazeatthenationalparks.com. That's gaze, G-A-Z-E. All original artwork featured on Instagram, on the website, and in our gaze shop is by me, Michael Ryan. All original music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger, and Sean Sklios. Our music producer is Skylar Fortgang. This episode was edited by me, Dustin Ballard. We would also like to acknowledge that while recording this episode, that we are on the traditional and stolen lands of the Lenape people, also known as Ocean County, New Jersey. Music